Isaiah chapter 21, verses 11 and 12. The oracle concerning Edom. One keeps calling to me from Seir. Watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? The watchman says, Morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, inquire. Come, come back again. Fathers, we open your word this morning. I pray your blessing on it. Lord, we're talking about something that seems like we talk about a lot. I pray we won't miss what you have for each one of us. And that's what I I love about your word, Jesus. I just love how you speak to each of us. And how we may not even all hear the exact same thing, but you use your word in a living way to impact our lives. And I pray for that this morning. Lord, not that people would hear my intentions, but that they would hear your intentions. And that we all would be, as a, as a body, as a family, but also individually, we would be motivated by what your Spirit says through your word. And I just pray a blessing on this time now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, another Super Bowl Sunday is upon us. You know football is mentioned in the Bible. Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Peter took his stand with the eleven. Is that right? There's volleyballs mentioned as well. Psalm 66, 11, you brought us into the net. Now, that could be tennis. You know, scholars are divided on that one. It's volleyball or or tennis. We know there is definitely a a tennis verse. Psalm 84, verse 10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. (laughs) Most of you know baseball, of course, is mentioned in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, right, exactly. But there's another reference to baseball I find even more interesting. Uh, Genesis 24-45 tells us Rebecca went down to the well with her pitcher. (laughs) Speaking of baseball, (laughs) and I realize it's Super Bowl Sunday, but let's go another direction. Speaking of baseball, who here has ever heard of the House of David? Baseball team, I'm talking. (laughs) People are going, I know House of David. Did you know there was a House of David ball club? There was. I know this because I was given as a gift a House of David baseball jersey. Very cool. I almost wore it this morning, but I thought it might be going to. I'll wear it sometime. But yeah, it's a classic wool baseball jersey. It says House of David across the top of it. And given to me by, by a dear brother and sister, and I really appreciated it. I appreciate any gifts, by the way. Just want you to know. So I was, I was given this, this jersey, and, and it's very cool. It says House of David on the front, and, and there was some uh, paperwork with it that talked about what the meaning of it was, where this team came from. They were a team uh, in the 1917 to 1930, roughly, uh, played. They, they did uh, games all across America. They weren't a, a professional team, but they were a traveling team, what they called a barnstorming team. And they played all over America. They played in the minor leagues. They played some major league teams as well. And they were well-known back in that day. 
famous for playing. They even beat the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, They beat the Philadelphia Athletics back in the day. And they were known, the House of David, it says it right there on the jersey, House of David, they were known for their long braided hair and their beards. Very well known for this. You can see them coming. And they were actually quite popular in America in that time. In the 20 plus years that they played, they traveled over a million miles and they won 75% of all games they played, which is pretty impressive. So where did they get the name House of David? Well, in 1903, Benjamin and Mary Purnell founded a religious colony in Benton Harbor, Michigan, that was called the Israelite House of David. They believed that it was their calling to basically ingather and reunite the 12 tribes of Israel in preparation for the return of Christ at the millennium. Interesting, I'd never heard of this, but apparently it was quite well known uh, earlier in the, in the previous century. They, uh, at the height of their success, had over 900 members in their group, the Israelite House of David. They owned a 1,000 acres of land. They had a cannery, a carpenter shop, a coach factory, a tailor shop, a steam laundry. They owned and operated their own electric plant. They had three brass bands, two orchestras, an amusement park, and I believe a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> they, they had all of this, and it was this very interesting group of people. Now, you prophecy buffs know in the late 1800s, flowing into the 1900s, all the way up to 1948, that was the rise of a movement called Zionism. Zionism, led by Theodore Herzl, who realized that if the Jewish people didn't have a national home, that they would cease to exist as a people. And so he started the charge for a national home back on the original land of Judea and Samaria that the Jews would begin returning there. And they did. And of course, the nation of Israel, the state of Israel is there today from 1948 on. And so there was a lot of interest at that time about this. And many Christians suddenly took a renewed interest in Israel and Judaism. And unfortunately, so did a lot of fringe groups at the time. Some like... Benjamin and Mary Purnell, who began to pilfer the prophecies. They began to take hold of them and and use them themselves. They began to promote some strange interpretations of Scripture for their own use. The Israelite house of David was not Jewish. It It was an offshoot of Christianity. Well, in fact, it was a cult. Which is why I'm not wearing the jersey this morning, because I was debating this. I actually had it out this morning looking at it going, do I wear... A jersey that says House of David that actually was a cult. (laughs) Well, the baseball team wasn't, so I may yet wear that jersey. I think it's kind of cool looking. But don't think that I'm trying to promote a new brand of this cult. The Israelite House of David. These were, Benjamin Purnell began, was raised in a Christian home by a preaching father. And he began to get hooked up with some different people and he started out teaching the Bible but then he got off in some strange tangents and they truly began a a cultish group. And I wonder, how do people, once claiming to be Christians, get so far off the biblical track? Am I capable of that? Could the Bridge Fellowship go? Yeah, we could. I hope you know that. I mean, I don't say that to unnerve you. I say that to say, you better be paying attention. Amen. And you better never listen to any individual leader, so-called, without checking out the facts. Without Bibles open. Without becoming completely aware. You see, what happened with the Israelite house of David was someone took their eye off the ball. 
someone stop paying attention? Israelite House of David, they had this baseball team, the House of David, and the House of David toured all around America, and in their touring it was to raise money and to preach the teachings of the Israelite House of David. That was their underlying purpose for playing baseball. That's why I mentioned them. But someone took their eyes off the ball as this group began to grow. Isaiah 66, verse 2. We read this on Wednesday night. A verse that that really impacted me this last week. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declared the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. I'm going to look to that person. I'm going to have my eyes, says the Lord, on the one who trembles at my word, who's, who's humble before me, who truly has a contrite spirit. But it's hard to tremble at His word when you're not listening to it or when you're not hearing it. To be humble, contrite of spirit, to tremble at His word, gang, in baseball terms, it is to keep your eye on the ball. And I invite you and encourage you again, Bridge Fellowship, keep your eye on the ball. Test everything that you hear, whether it's from me or somebody else. Bible's open, always. Mind's clear to hear the truth. Heart's open to receive the truth of the Holy Spirit, not of any other person. Not strange interpretations that would lift up a man. Only sound truth that elevates Jesus Christ. That's what we want to be about. Test everything. The Lord clearly warned against false prophets and false teachers in the last day. He couldn't have made it more clear. The Israelite house of David, like so many cults before them, believed some pretty whacked out stuff. (laughs) But in looking into them, because I got the jersey, I had to do some reading and some research, find out what the history was here. I got to give them credit for one thing. One thing they were very good at. As I looked into this strange community, I saw that they had a very definite eschatological focus. Eschatological, that means end times. They had their eyes on the end times. Now, the way that they planned to get there was not biblical and got somewhat off. And I, I'm not suggesting we, we follow that pattern here. <laughs> but their entire mission was predicated on the return of Jesus at the millennium, at the year 2000. And they formed around 19, what did I say, 1903. But they were looking to the year 2000. They believed at the break of the year 2000, Jesus would return. They had a date. And they looked forward to that. Benjamin Purnell was not a complete idiot. You know, he put it far enough out that he would long since be dead before it happened. (laughs) But he gave the date. He laid it out there. And we should never try, ever try to date the return of Jesus. Only to know that He is near right at the door. That His coming is at any time. Could be tonight. It could be next year. It could be another 50, 100 years. I don't know. I know He's coming back. But the thing that that interested me about this group in a positive way is that it is absolutely critical for Christians to live expectantly. I mean, if we could could have the, the grace of God to wake up every morning and ask this question, could it be today? I think it would change everything we do. How we behave, how we treat each other, what we're thinking at work, what our focus, our priorities, everything would change if every day began with that question, could it be today? And that was the whole formation of this Israelite house of David, so I give them that, kudos for that. Misguided though they were, they had an anticipation of the dawning of a new day, so it altered their lifestyles. 
They became a commune. They began doing everything together to prepare for the coming of Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting that we build a colony on Troxel Road. You know, the Bridge Christian Fellowship House of Communal Living and Athletic Discipline. (laughs) But shouldn't Christ's coming change or alter our lifestyles? Shouldn't that be the case? John wrote in 1 John 3, a passage I think most of you are familiar with, or many of you are, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared... What we will be. We know when He appears we'll be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. That purifying effect of anticipating Christ's coming. We've we've talked a lot about that. And a solid biblical anticipation of Jesus will purify you in that way. So what are you saying, Rick? Just this. Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Stay sharp in these last days. Heads up. Because I think it's dangerous to circle a date on the calendar or to add an alert on your phone. You don't want to do that. I also wholeheartedly believe that we are in the final watch of the night. Psalm 90 verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. Time goes by so quickly. I mean, since Jesus ascended, we're already over 2,000 years down the road. How fast it went by. I wasn't here for most of it, but it went by quickly. Back to Isaiah. Isaiah spent the majority of his book writing about Messiah, uh, writing prophecies of His glorious kingdom, and talking about the end of days. So if you're getting, uh, you know... If you're getting a heart full of messianic prophecies and second coming prophecies and preparation for Jesus' return, don't blame me, blame Isaiah. Because he talks about this all the time, over and over. Now, I want to look at just two verses. I I was looking ahead and thinking through what I wanted to talk about. I had something in chapter 22 I'll save. And I hit these two verses and it just jumped off the page and struck me. And I actually said, really Lord, just these two? Yes, just these two. In these two verses before us, we have the shortest burden in Isaiah's book of burdens. And you know this, we've been talking about it, chapters 10 through 23 is what we could call the book of burdens. Isaiah gives one burden after another, one oracle, some of your translations say, after another. And these are burdens that he has, and many of these are very difficult for Isaiah to bring. But what's interesting about this little two-verse burden in chapter 21 is it doesn't read like a burden. It actually reads more like a phone message. (laughs) You know, it's so short. Beep! You know, it comes on and it's done. It's a parable, really. You could call it the parable of the watchman and it is directed specifically at the people of Edom. Watch this, the very first verse. The oracle concerning Edom. Now that seems obvious enough, but some of your translations, if you're not reading the New American Standard Bible right now, you notice it doesn't say Edom there. In fact, in this two-verse oracle or parable, Edom is not named at all. The word, the name Edom is not used. The King James Version gets it right. The New King James Version, the NIV, some of the other translations out there, verse 11 is translated, the burden of Duma. Duma. What's Duma? Well, that's where we get the idea that this is Edom. 
That's where our understanding is that this is Edom. Also, the rest of verse 1 goes on saying, one keeps calling to me from Seir. And that's the second clue. How do we know that Duma, whatever Duma is, how do we know that it's Edom? Well, the second clue is that it says Seir. Seir is also Mount Seir. Or the mountains of Seir is another name for the region of the Edomites. So anytime you see Mount Seir in the scriptures, you know that the writer is talking about Edom. Okay? Mount Seir, the region of the Edomites. It was just south of Moab. We talked about Moab last week. Edom ran south from the eastern shores of the Dead Sea. It ran all the way south down to the northern tip of the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba, which is now the area of Jordan today. So both Moab and Edom and places somewhat to the uh, east of there was all what we would call the, the modern state of Jordan. The Edomites themselves, to whom this parable or this prophecy, this oracle is given, are direct descendants of the man whose name was Edom. And I think you know who Edom was. It's Esau. Esau is Jacob's older brother who sold his birthright for some red bean chili. And that was his problem. Anytime he walked in the house and there was food, he'd eat them, you know. Good way to remember. Eat them. Genesis 25, verse 30 says, Esau said to Jacob, and you may recall the story, he comes in, he's been hunting, he's sweaty, he's hairy, that's Esau, and he comes walking in, and he sees Jacob there, who's been cooking all day. (laughs) The contrast between these brothers is really, I mean, there's a stand-up routine in it, I'm sure. Because Jacob was an indoor guy, intent guy. He was very intense all the time. And then, and then Esau, and he was the outdoorsman. He was the hunter. And so he comes in and he says to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there for I'm famished. <laughs> Therefore his name was called Edom. So if this is an oracle for Edom, which it is, why does Isaiah call it, literally in the Hebrew translation, the oracle concerning Duma? What's Duma? In the language of Mesopotamia, which included Assyria, it would include Babylon in different dialects, but the primary language there was Akkadian. And the Akkadian Mesopotamian language had the word for the Edomites, it was Udumu or Udumai, which is Edom, Udum is what they would call it. And the region, you may have seen this in some some commentaries, uh, some Bibles mention the region of Edumia. And Edumia is Edom. It's the same thing. But Isaiah is a master of wordplay. There's so much here that, you know, if we could read Hebrew, we would be seeing this right and left. We'd see these words coming and going. He uses Duma in a different way, as a turn of a phrase. He uses it to say something. Because the word Duma here, in the Hebrew, means silence. You might note that. This is the oracle concerning silence. But it's a sinister word in the Hebrew. Silence. It's interesting. Duma is similar to our word dumb, which in its literal meaning means not to be speechless, to not be able to talk, to be silent. But the Hebrew word literally indicates the silence of death. This is an oracle concerning the silence of death. The silence of death and ruin. It's only used this way two other times in the Hebrew Scriptures. There's a name Duma that's used three times beyond this. But as a noun, as a word, it's used twice. Here are the two verses. 
Psalm 94, verse 17. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon dwelt in the abode of silence. Duma. Dead silence. Psalm 115, 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. Duma. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever praise the Lord. The word Duma, the Hebrew word, has the ominous sound of an oracle of deathly silence. And Isaiah chose the word purposefully. The oracle concerning Edom, or Duma. One who keeps, one keeps calling me from Seir, that is Mount Seir. Watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? Imagine here a watchtower down in the southern area of Judea, in Judea's southern uh, desert hills. And there's a watchtower there. And just across the border in Edom, just to the east of there, a voice rings out. On the watchtower, you have a watchman who's walking the tower, who's just kind of keeping watch there in the, in the dead calm of night. And a voice rings out across the border from the region of the Edomites, from Edomia. And the voice calls out and says, Watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? There's a picture the prophet is painting here. An interesting picture. One from Edom is calling out this question. And he's calling out to one on the watchtower there in Judea. What's behind the question? What's he really asking? And that's what I want to think about for a minute here. You know, there are a couple of possibilities, maybe more, but two really stand out. We can't hear the voice inflection, so we don't really know what the intent is of the question. I mean, the simple answer is someone just wants to know what time it is. You know, hey, watchman, what time is it? Although someone calling out from a bordering country to a watch in another country is not a real brilliant idea. You know, time for you to be silent. <laughs> Actually, back in that day, it may have been, you know, <laughs> sorry, I wasn't aiming at you, Les. Yeah. I was aiming at Donna, actually. <laughs> So, I, you know, so what, what's the intent behind the question? A couple of possibilities here. Number one, the scorn of the skeptic. The scorn of the skeptic. Watchman, how far gone is the night? He might ask, when is the glory of Israel going to be revealed? You prophets preach and you pontificate, and yet things are not going well for you. In fact, things are getting pretty dark. They aren't too sunny for Israel these days, aren't they? Or are they? How far gone is the night? The scorn of the skeptic. And this may be a skeptical question being lofted across the border. Peter says, and many of you know this well, 2 Peter 3, verse 3, he said, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You know, God knew people would react with skepticism. He knew that. He knew people would mock this whole plan of salvation. He knew people would scorn the second coming of Jesus, just as they would scorn the first coming of Jesus. God knew that. In fact, 3,000 years ago, He had Solomon pose a question to the mockers. 
Solomon would say in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22, How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. You see, they ask, where's the promise of His coming? And God asks, how long are you going to ask dumb questions? The scorn of the skeptic. And i got to be honest, there have been plenty of times in my life when cynical questions from the darkness have just made me roll my eyes. You know the question, why do you Christians believe Christians are so, why are you Christians? And there are times you just get tired of it. You know, much of the time you try to answer, but sometimes you just want to walk away. I'm so tired of the stupid questions. Because I know most of those questions of the scorners are not real questions. They're just trying to poke at you. You know? You've been around for a while now, guys. You've been talking about this end time stuff, this coming of Jesus, but it's 2012. What's up? (laughs) The scorn of the skeptic. But how are we supposed to view the skeptic or the scoffer? As, as followers of Jesus Christ, let me give you an example. He said in Matthew 24:37, Jesus' teaching said, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. This is what it's going to be like for these folks, for the scoffers, for the mockers, for the skeptic who refuses to believe, who just tries to poke holes in your faith. The flood's going to come and take them all away. Oh, not the flood as you and I read it historically. God's never going to flood the earth again. It will be a baptism of fire. It will be judgment. It will be tribulation such that the world has never seen. And so, when you hear people skeptical or mocking biblical truth, then you know this is what's coming. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now I tell you that to remind you of something. When I was a kid growing up, my parents had a picture Bible. I've mentioned this before, and it had several graphic paintings throughout the Bible of these great biblical scenes. And one of them was the scene of the flood. And i got to be honest, even though I was a Christian and believed I was you know, with the Lord and would be saved, it freaked me out. Because the picture painted in this Bible, some of you may have seen it, it's a, it's a pretty famous picture, shows the ark off on one side, massive waves crashing up against the side of the ark, and an outcropping of rock with 10 or 12 people on it like this. And I would look at that picture and I'd think, I wonder if Noah and his family could hear. Now maybe not. Maybe the, the wind and the waves and the storm and the crashing against the ark was so loud they couldn't hear anything and thus were protected from it. But could they hear the screams and the cries of people trying to survive? Of people who were going down in the flood? And I think perhaps, and I tell you that because I think we need to learn how to have more compassion for those who set themselves against Jesus. That we need to have more love for the scoffer, not just turn them off because here they come again. Oh, you're going to get yours. I mean, they're completely the wrong attitude. Noah and his crew of seven, listen, the people who died in the flood were people from their community. They were people they knew. They were people that they did business with, had interaction with, friends, perhaps even extended family, loved ones. They were in the 
in the ark safe from the flood while the entire world died outside the flood. And all that to say that even when the skeptic calls out, how far gone is the night, Christians? When is His coming, believers? That we need to have a flip go off, a switch go off, get flipped in our hearts of compassion. Yeah, I, I think I've given this example before, but Jesus uh, came to us in grace and truth, right? John tells us, John 1, 17, 18. Uh, and I think we need more grace and truth, more of that balance in our lives. And the example I've given before is that of a bowling alley with bumpers. You know, on the one side, when you put the bumpers up, which is my favorite way to bowl, by the way, because I get, I get pins every time. I say, put up the bumpers, man. So anyway, they put them up for kids. But the bumpers are like grace and truth for you and me. Have you noticed that in your own spiritual life that you have a tendency sometimes to start to lean really toward grace, but then you bump and then you're heading back toward truth, bump and then you're back to grace, bump and truth and grace and truth. And and picture, imagine those bumpers getting closer and closer together. The closer together grace and truth is, the more we are like Jesus. We need both. Not one versus the other, one or the other, both working in perfect unison together that we are not afraid to tell the truth, but we always tell the truth with grace. And the perfect marriage of the two, well, that's Jesus. How do we balance this? Well, Paul gives it to us, Ephesians 4, 14. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects, into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We speak the truth in love and we leave the judgment to God. That's how you do it. You don't stop speaking the truth because you don't want to come off unloving. You continue to speak the truth, but you do so with a loving heart, with a compassionate heart, with the motivation and the intention of seeing people saved. It really is because I love you, I'm telling you this. As opposed to sitting back and saying, well, this is the truth and that's righteousness and you're unrighteous and that's just the way it is. Flood's coming, man. You know, that is not our calling. But perhaps this question... Watchman, how far gone is the night is not a skeptical one after all. Perhaps it's the disquiet of the distressed. Watchman, how far gone is the night? How much time do we have here? There in the death silence of Edom, everyone's asleep but one guy. There's a voice crying out there in the darkness. There's a voice calling out saying, how much longer do we have? He calls out with an honest, troubling question. How long must we be in this darkness? John gives us the story of a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man, you know the story, came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus was a voice calling out in the night, in the darkness, undercover, if you will. And he said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus goes in the night for fear of reputation, for fear of what might be said or what might happen. He wants the truth, he's desperate for it, but he knows he's surrounded by a bunch of people who don't want to hear it. So he seeks out Jesus at night, goes to him and says, what's the deal here? And Jesus nails it. He answers the question beautifully. Unless one is born again, 
He cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus just cuts right to the chase. I love that. Here's the deal. This is what you're looking for, Nicodemus. You've got to be born again. And you know the discussion that ensues after that. Well, how can a man enter into his mother's womb again? What's the... No, no, no. You've got to be born of water and the Spirit. You need that spiritual rebirth. Now, I mentioned these two possibilities because something I, I see in Nicodemus I think fits a bit, and that is that sometimes the skeptic is the distressed, which is why we need compassion for the skeptic. Sometimes the mocker who would poke fun at your faith or try to poke holes in your faith are really just trying to see, will your faith stand up? Is there something legitimate here? But like Nicodemus, they've they got to kind of come undercover. Honest questions can hide behind cynicism. And it could be either one calling out from Seir in the darkness, how far gone is the night? There could be a tinge of skepticism, but at the same time, a sense of distress. And so what do we do in this world of darkness? Again, we speak the truth in love and we leave the judgment to God. We always tell the truth, but we do so lovingly, assuming whether or not there's skepticism or cynicism or mockery in the tone of the voice, we assume the person needs the truth of Jesus Christ. And so we give it lovingly. And Jesus is that example. In fact, deeper into his conversation with Nicodemus, remember what he said in John 3.17? God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And he who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus says, that's me. Grace and truth. So whether it's the scorn of the skeptic or the disquiet of the distress, we respond with grace and truth. And if you're praying anything, especially when it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus, pray that prayer. Lord, help me give your gospel with grace and truth. Give me sensitivity to offer both. I tell you all that because the watchman does. The watchman in our parable. As the voice calls out in the night, Watchman, how far gone is the night? The watchman of Judah responds. The watchman of Judah is probably Isaiah himself. Verse 12. The watchman says, Morning comes, but also night. Morning comes, but also night. He says two things, very simple, but both absolutely profound. And the first is, morning comes. How far gone is the night? Morning's coming. It's almost here. This is just the darkness before the dawn. And the dawn is coming. Daylight is imminent. How far gone is the night? It's almost over. The watchman says, Now, you need to remember, Isaiah was on the other side of the first coming of Christ. So questions directed to Isaiah, such as how long, how long until this prophesied Messiah comes, Isaiah is saying, he's almost here. Morning's coming. Morning's going to break. You may remember Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, where he talked about that first coming of Jesus. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And for many in the first century, Christ did dawn on them. They did recognize Him as Messiah. There was great salvation as people came to the Lord. But Isaiah marvelously not only talks about the first coming, but he talks a lot about the second coming. That glorious day when morning will break again 
And Jesus will be on the scene. He says in Isaiah 62, verse 1, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The prophet Malachi, he said in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will shine with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You think, well, I don't want to look foolish like that. You know what? When Jesus comes, you're going to be skipping, bud. (laughs) If you love Jesus, if you are a follower of His now, there's going to be no end to the dance. We will be so excited to see Him like cash from the stall. You know, I don't even know. I'm not going to be looking at your dance. Please don't look at mine. (laughs) But there's going to be joy as we see Him. And excitement and enthusiasm such as we've never experienced. Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 7, Will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? The Hebrew writer says, Hebrews 10.37, In a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And the message from Scripture is absolutely clear, and it has been for 2,000 years. The morning comes, and quickly. It has been for 2,000 years, Rick. But the morning comes quickly? Well, you know, day to the Lord is like a 1,000 years. A 1,000 years is like a day, Peter said. And there is going to be a time, and I do not think it's far away, when the day dawns, as Peter wrote 2 Peter 1.19, and the morning star arises in your hearts. And when that moment happens, and it, could be inst- it will be instantaneous, and it could be at any time, the darkness of the night will be forgotten, as it is every morning. When the sun rises, darkness flees. And the sun is going to rise with healing in His wings. The morning comes, the watchman calls. The morning comes. It's just around the corner. It's imminent. But, he says, know this, but also night. The morning comes, but also night. Hey, it's going to be a glorious day. It's going to get dark again. (laughs) Well, how does that apply? You know. The morning is going to dawn bright and beautiful when we get called home to be with Jesus rapture of the church. But what happens on planet earth very quickly after that? Night's going to fall. And there will be a darkness on this planet such as has never been seen before. Israel's dawn game. And this is what it means here. What is dawn for some will be darkness for others. And Israel's dawn will mean Edom's demise. Duma, the dead silence. When it finally dawns on Israel, it will be the demise of the enemies of Israel. In fact, before the prophet Malachi said the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings, he said this in Malachi 4 verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Day comes but also night, and with it, Duma, a dead silence. I've wondered what the world is going to sound like in the moments immediately following the rapture of the church. I really wonder about that. Don made an interesting comment to me. We were talking just the other day. 
that it's entirely likely, it's possible, you know, rather than airplanes crashing and cars careening off the road or any of that when the rapture happens, it's entirely possible that all the technology will have already crashed. And so it'll just be this sudden sense of people gone. And it will be an earth-shattering time. And yet nothing will be as earth-shattering as when Antichrist signs a covenant with Israel and kicks off the seven-year tribulation on planet Earth. Gang, the truth is, the morning comes in bright glory for all who call on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. But don't forget that the night of deep darkness will immediately follow and it comes for those who reject the grace of the Lord. Now please listen to me. Almost every time I talk about this, I get comments from people saying, I want Jesus to come, but I fear if He does, my family will be lost. Or my friends will be lost. I fear, I mean, I, I, on the one hand, I get excited that it could happen today, but on the other hand, if it happens today, I know too many people who would be lost and that frightens me. Listen, we need to be aware of that fear. We can't ignore it. Some people say, just don't talk to me about that. I just don't want to think about that. But if we don't think about that, those who you know right now are lost have that much less hope because we're not thinking about that. We're not going to deal with that. I'm not going to bring up that conversation again. I think we need to deal with this, gang, as opposed to feigning ignorance. We need to face it head on with the gospel of Jesus Christ on our lips and intercession in our hearts. Constantly praying for those who you know don't know Jesus and constantly bringing up Jesus to them. Oh, you want me to badger people? Yes! Wouldn't you badger them if you knew death was imminent? If you knew they were making certain life choices that would destroy them, that would kill them? Well, they are. (coughs) Now, if all the watchman said was, morning comes, but night also, that'd be kind of a dismal place to end the parable. But read on. He says, if you would inquire, inquire. Come back again. Now, In the translation here, it's just three words at the end. He says, morning comes, but also night. And then he says three words. Inquire, come, return. That's all it is. Inquire, come, return. What's really interesting here, and I I didn't even see this at first. I had to go back and dig a little bit. Bootsfazen points this out. Two of the three words are not Hebrew. Two of the three words are in Aramaic. The Aramaic word, tibayun, which means inquire, ask. The Aramaic word, atah, which is come. In fact, it's where we get the phrase maranatha. Maranatha, the Lord comes. Atah is the Aramaic for come. Aramaic was the lingua franca of the day. That is the common language. It was the lowest common denominator of the day. Why does Isaiah do that? Why does he suddenly, out of all the Hebrew, in this glorious Hebrew prophecy, all of a sudden he says two words in Aramaic. Ask, come. Why does he do that? Same reason Jesus did. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Which is really weird to me. Or has been for a long time. Why didn't he just speak Greek? Why didn't he speak Hebrew? For goodness sakes. 
Jesus Christ of the line of Judah, of the kings of Judah, of the Hebrew people, why didn't he speak glorious, wonderful, picturesque Hebrew? Why did he choose Aramaic? Same reason as Isaiah, lowest common denominator. He spoke the lowest language of the day. The language everybody knew, but the more educated you were, the less you would use the Aramaic. You know, you use the Greek or the Hebrew if you lived around about Jerusalem and were extra snooty. <laughs> Jesus spoke it in Aramaic. Why? So that everyone could hear when he said, inquire, ask. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And Jesus says, Ask, just like Isaiah does in Aramaic. So that everyone could hear him give this offer. Ask. Jesus also spoke in Aramaic, so all could hear him say, Come. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, he said. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, God. But the final word is now in Hebrew. The final word here is return. Return. But this is written in Hebrew, spoken in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word shub. Why? Well, this one would require just a little bit more effort. Perhaps a little bit of faith. And the Hebrew word is repent. Repent. If you're skeptical, if you're distressed, if you're calling out in the darkness, Isaiah says, ask, come, repent. Repent. Gang, Jesus is coming soon. And the message of Scripture and the message that is to be on our hearts to all people is ask, seek, come, repent. The truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you are one of those, like me, who is watching and waiting for the coming of Jesus in these dark hours before the dawn, know this game. Keep your eye on the ball. As Paul said in Romans 13.11, it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Father, we pray to you this morning that you will engage our hearts like never before by the power of your Holy Spirit. I first pray over the Bridge Fellowship for a, a greater outpouring of your Holy Spirit. And I ask, Father, you would so fill us up that we would have words given to us in these last days. That we could speak the gospel truth without giving it a second thought. Lord, for ourselves, that we would be in your word and in fellowship and taking in everything that you have for us, but we would wake up every morning recognizing today could be it. And by the working of your wonderful spirit, Lord, we could see people saved, responding to you, as we proclaim the Gospel. And Father, I pray this morning for anyone who walks through the door as we pray every week if there is a single person who has never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, may they recognize morning comes, but also night. And that You are right at the door. And we are running out of time. And I know that's a little unnerving, but Jesus, may we be motivated by that truth and I pray those who don't know You will give themselves to You even today. If, if that's You as we pray,
And just pray with me. Lord Jesus, I accept You as my Lord and Savior. I want to be with You. I believe that You died on the cross for me. I believe You rose from the dead. And I want to follow You right on into eternity. Come and be my Lord and my Savior. And Lord, I just pray that You would motivate us as Your children to call out like watchmen in the night. Morning comes, but also night. In Jesus' name, Amen.